Would you please stand as we read God's word? Verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so uh, privileged, honored, blessed to be under the ministry of your word that has been passed down through the ages by your prophets and your apostles. And we thank you for your servant Peter who has written to us to give us great encouragement and challenge today. And I pray that as your words proceed through my mouth, that they would uh, be received in the ears of our congregation today as words from you uh, for, for their benefit and for your glory forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are very few novels that tell you before you've even opened the cover of the book what the conclusion will be. Some of them you might be able to guess if there's some sort of Indiana Jones exploration. You know that he's after a certain treasure and you know that there is a certain threat, some other people who are also after a similar treasure. But that's about all you get in that hook paragraph on the back cover, right? You never really see an outline, chapter by chapter, of what's going to happen in this book before you ever open it. That's a very poor marketing strategy, isn't it? People probably would not buy the book. I know I wouldn't, because I just read the story on the back cover. But in the event that the title of the book was something like The Life and Death of, insert your name here, the life and death of Nate Fowler, and a biography before I've even died. Well, yeah, I'm going to pull that book off the shelf. I'm going to buy it. Because while I'm here in chapter 12, I need to know what's going to happen in chapter 13 when, when Katie and I are out of seminary. Lord, where are you going to bring us? I, I'm pretty sure that uh, we'd all like to know the future, wouldn't we? Well, the Bible is a book about our origins our end, and what we do in the middle. That's why it's the most popular book ever sold, ever printed, five billion copies or more. And that's what Peter has brought us through in his epistle so far. He's brought us through origins. He's brought us through the middle, the time in between, and he's brought us through the end. And our passage today specifically centers on the middle and the end. So our three points today are the enemy, the battle, and the outcome. Let's start 
with investigating our enemy. Verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So first we have a warning. Be sober-minded. In other words, be self-controlled. Do not be negligent. Do not be unpracticed in the ways of fighting sin. Be ready because there's a threat in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 16 says, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. There's something that we're preparing for. Peter's about to tell us. The second uh, warning is be watchful. How effective is a night watchman on the, on the city wall if he doesn't know who his enemy is, what the threat is? Someone may come, and he, if he doesn't know whether they're enemy or friend, he might let them in as an enemy. That's what Peter is trying to help us avoid. So he's going to tell us about the enemy. He says the adversary, your adversary, the devil. So, so he's real, first of all. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, says that there are two equal and opposite errors to which we can fall about our conception about the devil. One, we can be overly and excessively and unhealthily interested in him. You think Satan worship or you think uh, watching those paranormal activity videos. That's excessive interest in demonic things. The other error is denying him altogether, denying his existence altogether. The devil is real. And he is constantly threatening your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with each other. He's constantly alluring you to sin. And he's your adversary, adversary, enemy. He's against you. I think of the lyrics of A Mighty Fortress that we sang earlier. But Martin Luther says, we're still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he's armed with evil, hate. Against you, against me, on earth is not his equal. He is your adversary. He's also prowling. That's present tense prowling. It's not something that happened before, but you're safe from now. It's not something that will happen in the future, but you're safe now. It's something that is happening Every day of your life, all day, 24-7. Happens on the ad on your phone in the morning. It's in the billboards on your way to work. It's in the, the lyrics of your new favorite song. And at the end of a hard, works, a hard day's work, when you sit in your lazy boy, and you have your wine in one hand and your chocolate in the other hand, and your remote in your other hand, in your mouth, I don't know, where, wherever that would fit. You turn on the TV, and you're safe, right? No. The devil's threats are there too. He is prowling there too, and he even follows you into your dreams. I found myself fighting sin in dreams before. He's everywhere. One theologian says, your enemy is restless. He never sleeps. 
You may be careless about your souls, but he is not. He wants to make them miserable like himself. He will tell you at the beginning of your lives, it's too soon to serve God. He'll tell you at the end of your lives, it's too late. Oh, be not deceived. He prowls. And he's a roaring lion. Uh, and it's my understanding that among shepherds, there's a well-known concept that when lions would prey on a flock of sheep, they would walk around, search out vulnerabilities, and all of a sudden, when, when they saw there were some unaware, unwise sheep, they would roar, suddenly roar. And two things would happen. Some sheep would flock together under the protection of the shepherd, and others would scatter. Which ones would be devoured? The scattered ones. The ones who were disoriented. The ones who were unprepared. The ones who were lacking self-control. The ones who got separated from the group and were no longer under the protection of the shepherd. This illustration is ripe for addressing the slack church attendance that has followed COVID-19. I don't have all the time to address it in depth, but if you have a friend or a family member who has decided that since COVID-19 it's no longer convenient to attend church, I'm not talking about health risks, I'm not talking about convictions, I'm talking about just laziness. They are a scattered sheep away from the flock. This is the flock here, the congregation. Draw your friend, your family member back to the safety of the flock and the shepherd. Because they are at risk of being devoured by the devil. Devoured is the next word. It can also be said, swallowed up. This lion is not seeking just to bite you, or scratch you, or intimidate you, or hurt you. No, he wants all of you. He wants your entire soul. His goal is to smite God. And he will stop at nothing to do that. You're just a casualty along the way. But he won't just take half of you. He wants all of you. Let's think of this a little bit more practically. Because that's all kind of metaphorical, right? Well, if we think about the context of the writing of this letter. Peter is writing to several churches who are involved or citizens in the Roman Empire, in Rome. And they are claiming Christ as king. And that sounds like mutiny against the emperor. If you're not, if you're not worshiping Caesar, then you are antagonistic to our, our country. And as a result, Christians were enduring economic obstructions. They'd be prohibited from the marketplace. They would, be, they would be estranged from social gatherings. They'd be threatened. Death would be threatened. And even often taken. That's the roar. Fear tactics. Intimidation. Threats. 
That's the roar. But there's also devouring. I think more practically what devouring looks like is some form of compromise. Think of someone in that situation in the Roman Empire who would would say something like, yes, I'm a Christian, but I still want to be involved in marketplace uh, trade, so you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. You're right, I'm right. There's multiple ways to God, so can I have some groceries now? Well, we do that in our world in our day and age as well. Katie and I, at the end of a long day of work, we do the lazy boy wine and chocolate thing. And, um, and I, keep, I keep finding myself going back to the kitchen. I get a snack, I come out, I study a little bit or read or watch, watch some TV, and then I go back to the kitchen. And this goes on time and time again until eventually I realize I'm in the kitchen My stomach is full, but something in me is still empty. What am I trying to fill? We're unsatisfied creatures, and we cling to addictions like food, like nicotine, like pornography, like materialism, that next house, that next vehicle, that spouse, we're, we're constantly reaching, grasping for that next thing. And all of a sudden, as we're reaching, grasping, groping, we as sheep will find ourselves soon closer to the lion than to the shepherd. Our arms halfway in the lion's mouth, devouring Brothers and sisters, turn away from your sinful habits. Turn back to the safety of the good shepherd. Learn self-control. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. So what does Peter tell us to do about this adversary? You might expect him to say, run. So when he's... When the lion's coming, run. No. What does Peter say in verse 9? Resist him. Resist him? That ancient foe? That powerful demonic presence? Resist him? How are we supposed to do that? What's our second point? Leads to our second point. You remember the, the famous armor of God passage. That's Ephesians 6. And Paul does a similar thing. He gives you the command to engage in combat, and then he provides you the weapons to fight. You remember the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith. Well, Peter does a similar thing. He gives you the command, and then he gives you the weapon. The command, resist him, the weapon, firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what tool? What is the weapon that God gives us? It's faith. Faith about about what God has told us about himself in last week's verses, 5 through 7, that God opposes the proud, that he gives grace to the humble, that he cares about you. Faith in that. Faith in in, uh, what he tells us about our adversary, the devil. 
and faith also about our suffering brotherhood around us. The weapon of faith is how we resist the devil. Think about Eve in the garden. When she grasped for that fruit, who was she trusting and who was she resisting? She was trusting the serpent, and that meant resistance to God. But as we cling closer to our good shepherd, we trust him and we resist our enemy, the devil. Trust, belief, faith, that is resistance. And usually what it means is persecution, intimidation. Belief in Christ is a kind of suffering. You see what Peter says here, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering. He's correlating faith with suffering. How is that? Well, because belief in Christ usually equals persecution from the world. Holy suffering of faith keeps us under the protection of the good shepherd. Think about chapter 1, verse 5. It says that believers, you and I, are being guarded by God's power through what? Through faith. It's through faith that God's power works to protect us. Now, something about this suffering, it seems pretty exclusive to our battle with sin. Does this suffering exclude pain? The suffering that, you, that Peter is talking about, does it exclude pain and misery, mental disorders, emotional disorders, spiritual term, turmoil, dealing with loss? Does this suffering exclude those things? Is it separate? I don't think so. I think that this suffering is actually specific to enduring all of these things with faith. What Peter's talking about is enduring all of your sufferings, not just your persecution, but also your sin, also your pain, enduring them with faith, using your weapon of faith to go through your battle with sin or pain or persecution. The world addresses bodily suffering very differently, don't they? And I'm sure we have fallen into similar traps, as I know I have. You think about medical intervention. What's, what's that trying to do? It's trying to ease or stunt our suffering, isn't it? Oftentimes. A lot of the world doesn't have the medical interventions that we have here. So they must bear it somehow. We have that convenience here in America. Think of another way the, the world deals with suffering. They try to deny it by certain coping mechanisms, addictions, escapism. They just deny, no, I don't have any problems. I'm going out for a beer. There's a third way that the world tries to address bodily suffering, and, and uh, many of you may have heard of nirvana. I'm not talking about the band. I'm talking about the Buddhist practice of nirvana. It's a state of meditation where you're able to leave your body and all the sufferings of, of your bodily experience behind, and you enter a state of, of 
nirvana, of peace. They call it the end of suffering. That's why the title of this passage, of this uh, sermon today is The End of Suffering. But how do Christians endure suffering? Well, Peter tells us, through faith. But, in this passage, verse 9, not, it's not just your own individual faith, because I know myself, my faith is often failing. What do we do in that situation? Well, Peter says, remember, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Enduring suffering isn't just your own going through it with your own faith. It's going through it through faith together. Community is one of the weapons the Lord gives us against the devil. There's an assurance when a believer you know comes up next to you and says, I've been through that too. I'm here for you. There's an assurance when you see believers around you fighting against the devil and for God in this area, whatever it is that you're struggling with. There's assurance in in seeing believers who are sympathetic to your struggle with sin. These are some of the most valuable helps we have as Christians. It's like, uh, like a night watch in the Wild West. If you have a group, you have someone who can have your back while you're sleeping. If you're a lone ranger, you don't have that convenience, do you? We need each other. It's great to know. It's encouraging to know. And emboldening, isn't it? To know that someone else has been in that trench before you. And it's also important to recognize that other people will be in that trench after you. It's not just a clinging to somebody else who's been through it before. It's also a strengthening yourself so that you can be an encouragement to someone behind you. The suffering of the brotherhood. There's another way Christians can endure suffering. That leads to our third point. It's knowing the outcome of the battle. Some of you are stuck in patterns of sin that seem unbeatable. Some of you are in painful, miserable situations that seem unbearable. You just need some hope to get you through to the other side. You just need some motivation to keep fighting because you're so weary from fighting. It seems like you can't shake that feeling that you're just losing the battle every time. The pain, the sin, the persecution persist and you wonder when will this struggle finally end. Good news, brothers and sisters. Verse 10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me read that again. And after you have suffered a little while, God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. First comes suffering, then comes glory. Why must we suffer? I think we need to call back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why we must suffer. Because he is testing us like gold and, and dross. Burning away the dross. Purifying you as gold. The path to glory comes through suffering, and through following in Jesus' footsteps. That's, that's what we need to remember, is that we're not just suffering for suffering's sake. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this, to suffering, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps, he suffered for you. Now it's your opportunity to suffer for him. Think about it. This is the only time in our existence we will actually be able to fight against sin for the love we have for our Savior. And glory will be sinless. We won't have the fight anymore. This is your opportunity, brothers and sisters, to fight for your Savior the same way he fought for you, through the path of suffering it was when Christ endured the sufferings of the cross, a sinner's death, that that serpent, the devil, seemed to have a deadening clasp on our hero's heel. But then that glorious third day, our Lord resurrected from the dead and crushed the serpent's head. Call back to Genesis 3. Revelation 5 says that this lion, the lion of Judah, talking about Jesus Christ, the root of David, has conquered. So our lion, the lion of Judah, has conquered the roaring lion, the prowling lion. And for those who are in Christ, that lion is powerless. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ has also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. Chapter 2, 24, By his wounds you have been healed. It was through Christ's suffering that we attain glory. And it's through your suffering that you show your obedience to Christ, that you fight the battle while you're here, remember that sin has been defeated. The devil has been defeated. And actually, the last enemy is not the devil. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy is what? Death. But we're in a pretty good position because we've witnessed Jesus' resurrection, if not by, by sight, by faith. And we've also witnessed our own new creation, if you're in Christ. 
We now, because of these two things, have a foretaste of the coming conclusion to suffering. The end, the actual end of suffering. Soon the last page in this story of our days on earth will say the end to suffering. And the next chapter will be entitled The New Beginning, The New Creation, The New Heavens, The New Earth, or as Peter puts it in verse 10, eternal glory in Christ. Then will our sufferings be over. And the God of all grace, verse 10, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Restoration. You will be sinless permanently, no longer able to break the heart of your father, to break the heart of your husband. You will be confirmed, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession, God's own people. You will be strengthened, born again, chapter 1, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, built up as a spiritual house with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you will be established, chapter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that has been kept by God in heaven for you. You will be established into eternal glory in Christ. I'll end with two more passages. A call back to our beginning, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, where Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Chapter 5, verse 11, where we'll end. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Oh, Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are... We are privileged, we are undeserving of the great grace that you have given us, calling us to an inheritance we don't deserve, that only our Lord Jesus deserves. Give us strength, Lord, as we continue to fight for you here on earth, as we wait in the meantime, waiting for the end of suffering. Provide for us, Lord, strength in these days of difficulty that we might choose you and resist our enemy, the devil. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, we pray. And in your name, we pray, amen.